As we continue our series for Christmas, the series is entitled, The King is Coming. This morning, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, the proclamation of the King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as I endeavor to teach that you might energize me by the Holy Spirit, that I might be spirit-filled, that the flock might be fed, that we might be challenged, and then, Lord, that we might be empowered to be obedient so we're not just hearers of the word. Lord, I pray for those who are here that do not have you as their Savior. They have no protection. They're alone. They are hopeless in this world without you. Lord, you'd use the gospel, Lord, to give them light, draw them to yourself, give them hope that they might trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Every new king, every president comes with a new answer. They've considered what's going on in their realm, in their government, and they come with a proclamation. Our President-elect says, let's make America great again. And the Bible says we should be praying for those that rule over us, our local leaders, our state leaders, our governor, as well as our president, congressmen, senators, because we recognize that God ordains government and he can work through those, whether they recognize him as God or not. He is a sovereign God. You look at Pharaoh, and uh, Pharaoh wasn't much on doing what God wanted to do, and he did exactly what God wanted him to do, and he let his people go, didn't he? Because God is the powerful, sovereign ruler. But even if it's a wicked government, we as believers are called to submit to that government as long as it doesn't, doesn't go against what the Bible calls us to as believers in our worship and service of the king. But every president, every new king that comes on has to work within certain parameters. They can only do so much. Our king comes with the proclamation of redemption, that he will make all things new. The new religion is global warming, is it not? And uh, the rich people, they can drive big stuff, but you, you should walk. Maybe you should buy a horse. No, horses might cause global warming also. Because their fear is that in a million years or so, or a thousand years, this planet will be uninhabitable. I think it's going to happen before that. Global warming is coming, folks. But when it comes, there's nothing you'll be able to do about it. Because the Bible says in the end, the earth is going to pass away with a great noise and a fervent heat. It's going to fizzle. And then Jesus is going to make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. In the meantime, he's given us the promise, and you can see the promise of that covenant every time after it rains, you go out and you see a rainbow. And that rainbow was that God's promise, he will never destroy the earth with a flood again, and as long as he lets it go, there will be summer and fall and winter and spring. And guess what happens every year? It gets cold this time of year, doesn't it? We wondered if it was going to, but now it's here. It's cold. And the cold is good. The Bible says, and even the psalmist said, who can stand before his cold? Cold reminds of his power. He, he stores up his ice. Who can stand before his cold? But we know, even though it's going to take too long, spring's coming. 
we have to count up spring and Laramie a day at a time. It comes maybe next week we'll get a day. But eventually, summer's going to come. Folks say in, in Laramie we have two seasons, winter and the 4th of July. But we get it all. It all comes, and it will continue. Sometimes we get some more snow. Sometimes we get less snow. But God's promise in the rainbow is that until he decides to redo it, it's going to remain the same. Our king can make things new. We live in a culture, in a world of broken people. Our governments break promises. Broken nations, broken world, people without hope. Think about it. Even if you got the perfect administration with a perfect, you know, what we thought would be perfect Congress and Senate, and we got good people on the Supreme Court, in our mind we say, well, how long is that going to last? Right? Because we know in human government there's just not that much hope. You look at the justice system. If you have more money, you get more mercy, don't you? Pay somebody off, get a slick attorney, and they can talk you off, get you off on a technicality. But if you have no money, you don't even have to be guilty. You're going through the meat grinder. You're going away. That's the way it is. We try to bring laws to legislate people be nice to one another. Equality, no racial hatred anymore. The Bible says there's going to be that kind of sin until Jesus rules and he sets that straight. Now, as believers, he rules in our heart and we can have the experience of his rule and we can love one another in spite of what the world is doing around us, in spite of the circumstances. What we see here in Isaiah 61 is both advents, both comings of Jesus. In verse 1 up till the first line of verse 2, we see his first coming. Now, Jesus came the first time to redeem sinners from their sin. Remember, he told, they asked him, why do you keep hanging out with sinners? Pharisees didn't like that. They hoped to get him on his side and leave those ugly sinners by themselves. No, don't hang out with those Samaritans. Don't hang out with, with uh, people that aren't racially pure and people that have problems. You know, we just be with us rich people. Be with us successful people. Why do you hang out with those sinners? He said, well, I, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those that are well don't need a physician. So who is closer to the kingdom? People that were sinners, that understood there was no hope, and he brought hope to them. When Jesus came to Nazareth as he was beginning his ministry, he went back to his hometown where he grew up, and he picked this passage in Luke 4. You can read that account. He picked this passage, these two verses, actually verse 1 and the first line of verse 2, to read to begin his ministry. They'd heard about him and all the wonderful things he was doing, and, and they were thinking, well, hold it. This is just Jesus. Isn't he just the son of Joseph the carpenter? I mean, the mason down there? I, I don't, what, what's going on? Who is this guy? But, well, now he's here. So he came to church that morning. He walked into the synagogue. They hey. Let's have Jesus read. So they hand him the scrolls and he opens up to Isaiah 61 and he reads these words. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom 
to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he stopped, handed the scriptures back to the ones taking care of the scrolls, and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the anointed one. And at first they said, wow, what gracious words are these? I mean, those are big words for, I mean, we know who this is. But he didn't stop there. You see, Jesus wasn't a seeker-sensitive pastor. He wasn't trying to affirm people so they could kind of con them into following them. He always got down to the truth. And he began to tell them that not only had he come to bind up the wounds of Israel, but he came for the Gentiles too. And as soon as he said that, they rejected him. Right there in his hometown, they grabbed a hold of him. And if you've been to Nazareth, you know that it sits on top of this high hill with long, steep, rocky cliffs. And they drug him out there to throw him off the cliff. But because his time wasn't yet, he just passed through. And he left there and he went down and set up his headquarters down in Capernaum. And that's where his ministry began. They rejected the offer. See, Jesus came the first time to be the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist announced him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Even John didn't fully understand the purpose of Jesus coming because when John got thrown in prison for preaching the truth, he thought Herod would get his heart right. He thought that Jesus back him up and they just, just straighten out the government and they kick Rome out. And when he was in prison, he sent his disciples to Jesus and he said, Are you the one? He said, you go back and tell John, the dead are raised, the blind see, I'm here to heal, I'm the one. See, the prophets didn't see that. Jesus stopped at that line of verse 2 because he, didn't, he wasn't coming the second time. This was the first advent. He wasn't coming to bring the day of the Lord yet. He was coming to offer himself. He was going to take the wrath of God on himself on the cross. The second time, he will be the wrath of God. He will be the judge. But he stopped there. Today, the first advent is complete. And he was there to fulfill all the scripture said about the coming Messiah, the coming anointed one. We live among broken people. In our nation, in our culture, we were a nation that was founded upon the principles of the word of God. That's why we have the government we do with two houses, an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch. Why? Because our founding fathers, based upon the truth of scripture, said man is basically evil. If you give any one man or any one house total power, it will corrupt him. So we're going to have a balance of powers. And so the house doesn't rule over the executive branch. The executive branch doesn't rule over the judiciary. There's a balance of powers there. They have to work together. They need one another's permission. But Jesus is going to come. And when Jesus sits on the throne, you won't need an attorney anymore. He is your advocate. He is also the judge. You don't need somebody to come and testify in a court case because he knows because he's God. The Bible says he will rule with a rod of iron. What that means is you're not going to be bending the judge around. He knows the truth. He will judge mercifully, but he will judge with total 
justice, and righteousness. There's no perversion, no paying the judge off. There's not enough money to pay God off. Righteous, perfect government. Now, in the first advent, God brings peace to individuals that trust him as their savior. When the angels made the announcement to the shepherds, they said, and peace on earth to men of goodwill. To men, to people that choose Christ as their savior, he brings peace in spite of the circumstances. You see, sin destroys Because we live in a culture that's turned their back on God, you can look at Romans chapter 1 and see what happens to cultures there. When they begin to worship and serve the creature more than the creator, God turns them over to reprobate thinking. They can't think straight anymore. And to do those things that are not convenient, and it talks about the destruction of a culture. Have you wondered why? Now, the world will tell you that, well, people have always been this way. But have you wondered why in the United States people are so confused now? Little boys don't know if they want to be girls or boys. If you read Romans 1, that's just part of the delusion that Satan comes. Because when God pulls his blessing off, all of Satan's lies begin to take full force. So don't blame just the sinner. Yes, people are responsible for their own decisions. But the confusion is Satan's lie that's taking over our culture. And what will those confusions lead them to? Brokenness. Brokenness. You have an Olympic champion like like Bruce uh, Jenner, and you think of all people, he had all the world at his feet. An amazing athlete, one of the greatest athletes. But he's not enough. Now he has to be a woman too, and a guy at the same time. And the world, because of political correctness, oh, we need to just rejoice and just, just praise and Thank him for doing that, having the courage to do that. Do you think it's made Bruce Jenner happy? No, that's Satan lie. He's still looking for something that's missing. Satan said, try this, and it brings destruction and confusion because that's what Satan is. Jesus said he's a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. He brings confusion to people. Now, we're not called to be mean or have a judgmental spirit. But if we understand, that's what Satan does. He just brings judgment. I've seen it happen many times in old men when they've outlived their peers and pretty soon they have to keep reminding them how great they used to be. That's going to happen to Bruce L. Pretty sure if he lives that long enough. Remember, I was, I mean, Bruce L., Bruce, Bruce Jenner. You, you, you remember, I used to be that great athlete. And they're going to go, what? You're an old woman. No, 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 I was a great athlete. When? On what planet? Right? When they did the ESPY Awards, when he got his award for something that he'd done, I don't know what that was. They had to not pan the athletes because most of the athletes, you know, quarterbacks, Brett Favre was like, what? They didn't get it. Nobody gets it. That's Satan's lie. Now listen, you can change the name of cancer. It still kills and destroys, doesn't it? You can call it health. You can celebrate cancer, it will still kill you. And if you go to your doctor and he says, oh, don't worry about it, because he doesn't make you feel bad, that's a bad doctor. And we as believers are called to speak the truth in love, not in condemnation, but in love. And the gospel is the only thing that will heal that brokenness. That's the same lie 
that Satan blows into the ear of a man or a woman in a marriage, and he says, you know what? You need to follow after this one over here. And they leave their marriage because they found their life partner. They found that one that they were looking for all their life, and all the movies talk about it, and we justify it. Guys like, like uh, um, Johnny Cash. I think Johnny Cash might have come to the Lord toward the end, but you know he left his family and his wife, so he could have June Carter because that's who he was meant to be with all of his life. So he wrecked both families. She left her family. And then we say, well, you know, they found that one. So we understand that. And Satan says, yeah, that's what you need to do. You need to do. He blows in the ear of a young man. He says, you just need to try this drug once. You can quit anytime you want. When we were little in Sunday school, I don't know if you did this in Sunday school, but the teacher would call you up and, and pick a big strong boy and uh, put a thread around your wrist. Do you ever do that, Larry? Do you ever do that in Sunday school? Put a thread around your wrist. Now break it. And you break it and you go, ah, yeah, I broke the thread. And they said, now let's, let's try this again. They put two threads on there and, yeah, I broke two threads. And I just stand here for a minute. By the time I put three or four, that little guy's not breaking anymore, and, they, and the teacher would say, that's what sin does to your life. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but when it brings forth it fruit, it is death. The, the father in Proverbs tells his son, now come here, son, I want you to watch this fool. Here comes this young, innocent man thinking he knows what he wants. This young man comes walking down the sidewalk, and here comes the harlot. And she woos him with her smooth words. And her glistening lips. And he goes with her and he says, oh, listen, my husband's gone. Nobody's going to know about it. We're going to take our fill of love till the morning. I have, I have spiced my sheets with cinnamon. And he's not coming back and we're just going to enjoy one another. And the father says, now what that young man doesn't know is the dead are in her house. And he's not going to know till a dart strikes through his liver. That's what sin does. And it doesn't only destroy those people that participate. It destroys people around them, whole families, immorality, drugs, whole nations. We've seen the African nations, some of them destroyed because of immorality, of disease they can't get rid of. That's what sin does. And for people to say that Christians, because they call sin, sin, speaking the truth and love, are haters, is Satan's lie. So don't get caught up in that. There's only one thing that can bring peace and healing, and that is Jesus Christ. The first time he came, he said, I have come to bring help to those that are put down to the afflicted, that's what the word afflicted means, those that are, are suppressed and depressed. How many children don't get to eat in America, in America, because their parents spend their money on drugs and alcohol instead of food and clothing for their children? And it's not our part to say, well, their parents should have done better. When we see the opportunity, John says, little children, let us not love in word, but in deed and in truth. We should be looking for opportunities to bring help, but the ultimate help, like we bring these gifts to the angel tree kids, we bring the gospel too. When we send the shoe boxes out around the world, those kids are hurting. 
Franklin Graham makes sure the gospel is there because that's the greatest help and that's the greatest need. He's come to bring help to the afflicted, the good news, the gospel. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Some of you may have suffered as a child from abuse or neglect. You wonder, where was God in all that? Oh, God was there. He was practically, but how can I, how can I work this out? Well, we have Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes even wickedness to turn out for good to them that love him and to them that are called according to his purpose. That's how sovereign our God is. God, or Satan intended that wound to be permanent, to leave you hopeless and broken forever. Some of you come from broken homes. You say, will there ever be hope for me? I remember a young person coming to me years ago and saying, you know, I didn't know this before and both my, my, my wife and I have been with other people and, and we, we lived together before we got married and so there's probably no hope for us to have a good home. I said, that's, that's not true. Our Jesus brings health. He brings comfort. He brings healing. He brings holiness. You can have a marriage you never even dreamed of if you just submit to his rule in your life. Some of you have suffered greatly and you say, how can any good come out of that? Well, as God heals you, one day you're going to run into somebody that's hopeless, that's broken, and they have no hope of ever being healed because that's what psychology says. Oh, you're never going to get healed from this. And you're going to say, I know the way to healing. Follow me as I follow Christ. You're going to take the salve of the word of God and apply it to their heart, and there'll be strength where there was no strength. There'll be hope and joy and worship where there was never hope for that before. That's how God comes around and overcomes Satan. Even to those that have suffered, he, he says, I want you to proclaim liberty to prisoners. Those that think there's no, there's no ever any way to get out from this drug habit, this alcohol. Jesus, he proclaims freedom. He can set you free from sin. What's the process? If you know Christ... John, 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sin, what does that mean? God, that's sin. I agree with you. You say that's sin, I say that's sin. You agree with God about your sin. He is faithful and just. He will forgive your sin. And then he doesn't say, and never go back there again. Make sure you clean yourself up. No, no, that's not what it says. He is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He does the cleansing. He does the cleansing. The proof, the last verse, you become an oak of righteousness. You begin to have fruit that's unexplainable because that's God in you. And freedom to prisoners. Even in Old Testament Israel, when God sent his prophets to stand up and tell the truth, the king didn't like it, they'd throw those people in prison and kill them. Jesus brought that. Because they acted like, the Pharisees acted like they honored the prophets. He said, yeah, you honor the prophets by dressing up their tombs, but which one didn't your father, fathers kill? You're just like your fathers. I come, and I preach the truth to you, and you seek to kill me. You're just like your father the devil. Jesus brought the truth. People naturally don't want to hear the truth. They can't hear the truth apart the sovereign grace of God that opens their heart to their lost condition. But Paul said, 
even though I'm in a Roman prisoner, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ because even in prison, he could worship. Even after being beaten wrongly, he was a Roman citizen. They shouldn't have beat him without a trial. They beat him, and yet at midnight, they sang praises. What could, what good could come out of somebody being unjustly accused, no trial, and beaten? Why were they singing? How could God use that? He saved the Philippian jailer and his whole family. God knows how to undo Satan's deeds. Though he, Satan brings hopelessness and brokenness, Jesus brings health and he brings life. There's a need for both redemptions. Then it says the favorable year of the Lord. That's when Jesus walked on the earth. During Passover time, each family was to take and find a lamb with no blemish, would be acceptable, and they were to take it into their home. They weren't just going and pick some sheep they didn't know out of the flock. They brought that lamb into their home. And what happens to a lamb when you bring it in the home? Well, pretty soon he's sleeping with Junior, right? He's right there, and everybody's petting the lamb, and the lamb begins to trust everybody and follow everybody around. They're so cute. And then what's going to happen is the father's going to take that lamb down to the temple, and he's going to place his weight upon that lamb, and the priest with one swift cut of the knife is going to cut the throat of that lamb and catch the blood, and then as the life drains out, that lamb will collapse to the floor. How hard would that be? What was God trying to show them? There has to be an innocent victim to take your place because God sees your sin and he has to judge sin because he's a holy God. There must be a payment for sin. You can't get good enough. That was all looking forward to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. No sin, no blemish. He came and he lived in the favorable year of the Lord, those three and a half years. All of Israel knew Jesus Christ. Some of them had been healed by by him. And yet, on the last day, they cried out together, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And they led him away and they crucified him. And as they nailed those spikes through his wrists and through his ankles, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And the priests came by and they wagged their heads and they stuck their chin out and they said he saved others. He cannot save himself. Oh, that was the truth. If he had saved himself, we could not be saved. It took the perfect lamb to take our place. But the next line of verse 2 of Isaiah 61 says... Not only became the favorable year of the Lord, but the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. How does that statement, God's vengeance, bring us comfort? Let me tell you how it brought John the apostle comfort. If you look in Revelation chapter 5, you can turn there if you want. We have this picture of the stadium of worship, the throne room of God. And the angel steps out with the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. And it's sealed with seven seals. Now, when you go buy a house today, it was a house somebody else built. 
uh, you want to make sure if you're building the house, there has to be a free title on it. And so all those people that worked in the house have to sign off, right? They have to sign that they're not going to hold a lien against that house. John MacArthur tells a story that I remember hearing growing up in church also. Story of a little boy that got a, a kit for a toy sailboat. And it was very hard, this hard model. And so he put the sailboat all together. It was very expensive. He saved his money up for it. And he spent all his time following instruction, putting it together. And one day he took it out to the little bay that he lived by. And he sailed. And oh, he was so proud of his boat to sail. But all of a sudden, an unexpected gust of wind came up. And it blew the boat out into the deep water. And it left his sight. And he thought, I'll never find my boat again. All the work that he put into it, all the craftsmanship, all the money that he saved, the little boat was gone. But one day, a little boy is walking down the street, and he sees his boat in the pawn shop. And he walks into the pawn shop owner, and he says, uh, hey, that's my boat. I can show you where I put my mark on it. That's my boat. I built that boat. Pawn shop says, my boat now. That's what Satan did. God created this world. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven four that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person that God had, spoke the worlds into existence. All of its beauty, all of its order, all of its laws. He still holds it together. He built it. He created it. Satan came in, defiled it, destroyed it, and he stole it. Now Satan's the prince of the power of the air. And so there had to be a payment. And there in the throne of heaven, this drama is played out as John sees in his vision. The angel steps out and says, who is worthy to take back the deed of the earth? Because the way the earth is going, I don't care what presidency you get, what person you get to be king or president, we always know it's going to be a problem. Someplace else, they're going to want to attack us. We live with terrorists in our midst today. You never know. You might go to the mall and somebody might just shoot innocent people in the mall. That's our culture. That is the culture of sin in our world. That's Satan. He just wants to destroy. And a search is found in heaven and on earth and in the sea. And the angel says, no one's worthy. And the Bible says there in Revelation 1, John begins to weep greatly. John knows he's going to heaven. There he is in heaven. But he's saying, really, no hope? The world's always going to continue to be this mess with wars and broken people with no hope? He begins to weep greatly because no one's found and nobody's going to bring a conclusion to this. Nobody can fix it. And then the elder standing next to John, he says, John, you stop crying. The line of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. And then Jesus steps out. He's worthy. And John said, I saw a lamb freshly slain. You know what that means? That means in heaven, God's going to make you his child perfect. But Jesus is still going to have the scars of his crucifixion to remind us that all that we have, all that we are, all for eternity, he paid for it. Not with Things like silver and gold, but with precious things, his own blood. He bought you with his life. 
He died for you. When you're an enemy of God, he loved you in spite of yourself, and he died for you. He died for me. And Jesus steps out, and he takes the scroll. And you see the book of Revelation is the unrolling of that scroll. What's going on there? What's going on there is the day of the Lord. As God, as he breaks those scrolls, and then the bowls and the vials and all those things pour out on the earth. God's wrath is poured out on the earth. Just like in Pharaoh's day, only worse, now it's worldwide. So there's no doubt who is God. But what do most people, even though they know it's God, what do they do? They say, cry for the rocks to fall and then hide them from him who sits on the throne rather than submitting to him. Just like the people in Nazareth, most people reject him. They reject him. When Jesus takes the scroll there in Revelation chapter 5, all of a sudden that whole stadium breaks out in worship. And first the elders around the throne, they, they bow down and they pour out those vials that are full of the smoke, which signifies all the saints of all the angels. And that smoke rises up to God. And then all the saints of all the ages begin to sing. And then they're joined by the myriads and myriads of angels. I can't even imagine that sound. And what do they say? Worthy is the Lamb. Because with your own blood, you were slain. And with your own blood, you washed us from our sins. Some from every tribe, nation, and people group. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world world. In all of that, he died personally for you, making you personally accountable for the death of the only begotten Son of God. What a story. What a story. The idea that Jesus would finally fix the earth brought comfort to John's heart. He began to join the worship too. See, what is the day of the Lord all about? It's about God getting the attention ultimately of the nation of Israel. He hasn't forgotten about them. He hasn't forgotten about them. And that whole seven-year tribulation, the day of the Lord, is about Israel coming to Christ. You read Isaiah 53 that prophesies Jesus' coming, that actually is a prophecy of the Jewish people recognizing they missed Jesus and then accepting him as their Savior. We thought he was just despised of men. We turned our faces away from him. And yet, by his stripes, we are healed. The chastisement of our sin was on him. They recognized him. And they see that it pleased the Father to crush the Son because he did that for us. So the day of the Lord is about the salvation of Israel and some from every tribe and nation. There's going to be such a harvest of souls during that seven years in spite of the tremendous devastation that's going on. People know who to blame for the chaos and the pollution that's going on. It will be God. And some will turn to him and some will hate him. But then Jesus comes back and he comes back at the very end and it says, to all those that mourn in Zion. Why is that? Because while God is saving his people, Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, see at the beginning of the tribulation, the the seven years begins when the Antichrist, the man of sin, makes a deal with Israel. And he looks like their best friend, but he's lying. 
and he makes them secure, and things look great, and they get prosperous. But he's just waiting for the day when he walks into the temple that he built for the Jews, but really it's for himself. And he walks in, he says, oh, by the way, I'm God, worship me. And Jesus said, when you hear about the desolation, the abomination of desolation, and you're in Jerusalem, and you're on your housetop, don't even go back and get a coat, just leave town. Because the Antichrist is going to turn on the nation of Israel and Christians around the world, and he's going to make Hitler look like a child in the destruction of that nation. Because he's filled with Satan. Satan has always been trying to destroy the nation of Israel. He's been tried to destroy the Messiah in his life. At his birth, Herod sent down and killed every child in Bethlehem, under the, every male child under the age of two. They tried to stone Jesus before his time. It was not until Jesus went to the cross on purpose that he gave up his life. It was on God's timetable. But Jesus is going to have to come back at the right time or there will be no nation left. There will be no people left. He's going to show up and he's going to save them. So he says to bring comfort to all those that mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. You see, they lost all hope. Even though they trusted Christ as their Savior, who can stand against this Antichrist? He's just so bloodthirsty, and he's indwelt by Satan. He's powerful, and so they're mourning. And people mourn, they put ashes on their head, but Jesus is going to come, and he's going to bring joy. He's going to bring comfort and healing. And the, the, the idea of the garlet is a headdress or a turban. He's going to put worship clothes back on. He's going to make man the person that he intended them to be, first of all, in the Garden of Eden. He's going to restore. Then it says he's going to bring the oil of gladness. Remember Psalm 23? The good shepherd says, he anoints my head with oil. What is that? Oil was for healing. And Jesus said, when you fast... Make sure you wash your face. You just do it before God, but you put oil on your head and your hair so that you look good. That's what oil was for. Jesus is going to come down and oil brings healing. He's going to anoint his people. He's going to heal them. He's going to replace the ashes with worship, with gladness. And then he says, the mantle of praise, instead of the spirit of fainting, they were almost gone well, we'll just die and we'll go be with the Lord and then Jesus shows up and begins to restore. And what does Jesus do? In the first advent, he gives us hope. This is not the end. Even if we die, we have courage because to be absent the bodies would be present with the Lord. And in spite of the circumstance, we can have peace because of our relationship. In the second advent, he changes all the circumstance. It says they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and neither will they learn war anymore. There is that in the heart of man that desires peace, is there not? It's there. Even Walt Disney knew about it. And they have stories like the Lion King or they show Pocahontas like when the Native Americans ruled it was all peace. Listen, every culture is killing one another for preeminence. They might have had some things better than we do, but they're still after one another. Every culture, there is no perfect culture. No perfect culture. And make Pocahontas look like, well, until the white man showed up, we all got along good. 
No, they had different problems. We just brought new problems with. And the Lion King, well, the lion is just out there in the forest, in the jungle, and he's just taking care of everybody except for the bad hyenas. I mean, if it weren't hyenas, we'd have no problems at all. Those hyenas are just bad. But the lion, he's good. And he takes care of everybody else because he's a good king. That's in our heart. But there's only one king like that, and that's the line of the tribe of Judah. It's the only one. And when he changes the circumstances, he promised the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. We're not there now. We don't put lambs in lion's cages to keep them safe. They would be lunched that fast. And it says the lion's going to eat grass like the ox. Something's got to change. Lions don't eat grass. They eat meat. And the child will play at the hole of the asp, a very poisonous snake. And they will not do harm in all of God's kingdom. The circumstances change, don't they? Everything's going to be different. He's going to be healing. The rest of this chapter talks about how Israel's going to have peace and security. And people are going to love them. Right now, there's one thing people are prejudiced against in all the world, and that's Jewish people. They just, I don't know, it's just Satan's lie. He hates the Jewish people because God said, no, I'm going to use this people to be sal- bring salvation to the world. So Satan just hates them. And they suffer prejudice wherever they go. God's blessed them in spite of that. But now the whole world's going to change. They're going to want to be close to the Jewish people. They're going to want to come to Jerusalem. They're going to want to work on the farm for a Jewish person. Read it. The circumstances have to change. Only one person, and that's the king that's coming back and change those circumstances. For what's all this purpose? He said so that these people that he brings healing and joy and security to will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I love that. I love that statement. You know what? That's the result of the gospel in a person's life. Now, you and I have seen people that have made a decision for Jesus, and then a little trial comes, a little temptation comes, and they're gone. You say, well, what happened there? You understand? That's God's blessing, too. In Psalm 1, it says, the righteous man, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor seat in the seat of the scornful. His delights in the law of the Lord. See, that's, that's the oaks of righteousness. They delight in God's word. And in this law, he meditates day and night. And the Bible says that he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What is that? That's God's planting. He'll put you right where you need to be for your giftedness, for your life of faith, exactly where you need to be. And then what does it say? He brings forth his fruit in this season. His leaf will never wither, and whatever he does will prosper. Why? Because you're God's planting. You're God's oak tree. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, his prayer was that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundant beyond all that we ask or think. And I look at even the people in our little place here in Laramie, Wyoming, that have come to know Christ, 
And when they really know Christ, there is no explanation but God. But God. We were lost without hope, but God. But God. I look around the room and I see my buddy James. I remember when James wasn't a believer. And uh, they used to paint his, his hammers bright fluorescent colors. So when they came flying across the job site, they'd get out of the way. And a couple, a teenager, at least one teenager just said, hey, James, why don't you come to church with us? And James said, I don't need church. James came to church and God saved him and he's got an awesome godly family. I remember when Billy Wiley, the first time Billy came to church, he walked in, he had long hair and he was all alone and he was in trouble and he was lost. And I saw him back there and I thought, who is this guy? Eighth grade, he dropped out of school. His parents didn't know what to do with him, so they just let him go. And somebody knocked on his door and gave him the gospel. He didn't get saved, but he thought, maybe I should visit that church. Because he knew that if he kept going, the Holy Spirit was talking to him. He was going to die. 13-year-old, 14-year-old boy, he knew he was done. He started coming to church. And then he got into Bible study. And then Billy got saved. And Billy, on his own, went back and he finished high school. And then James helped Billy and... Pretty soon he was doing his own business, and now Billy's writing books about prophecy. Billy's a teacher in our church. And I look at it, and I said, that's the planting of the Lord. Only God can do that. And I hear the testimony of my friend Wade Hampton, who was just so full of hate and bitterness. Nobody could rule that guy, but God showed up. My friend Ben Sanchez, he'd heard the gospel he didn't want it, really want anything to do with it. He, he'd been in church for a while. When he's old enough, he didn't go to church. One day, God reached down. And he turned the light on. He saved Ben. You know what Ben does now? He sinks his roots down into Scripture. He memorizes not verses. He memorizes books. And next time, I've told him this. I've warned him. Next time I preach to Romans, I'm going to dress him up like the Apostle Paul. And he's going to come up here and he's going to quote. I've heard him quote the whole book of Romans. But he didn't stop there. He's, he's memorized 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And I'm telling you, when you hear him quote it, it's like listening to the Apostle Paul write it. Who did that? Is that because Ben is so smart? That would not have been in all of Ben's thoughts to sink his life into the Word of God. That is God, my friend. That is God see, the wind, the trials come, it blows the chaff away. But oaks of righteousness, they just sink their roots deeper into Jesus. The Bible says trouble is, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly up. You're going to have storms in your life, but the believer knows where to get his strength from. And all you can say about people like that that have trusted Jesus Christ, every one of us that have put our trust in him, we only can say, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. So other people will say, well, that's God's trees. That's God's planting. How can you tell? By the strength of the tree and the fruit it produces. Why? So that God might be glorified. He does that all for his glory. You know what brings God's glory? Saving wretched, broken, hopeless sinners. Then growing them into mighty spiritual oak trees. God loves to do that. He loves to take people that people around them say, there's no hope for this guy. He's gone. She's gone. There is no hope. And make him a spiritual oak tree. 
This business of redeeming sinners is so huge, only God can do it. The angels can't even fathom it. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to angels that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Oh, they want to study. When we get to heaven, they're going to want to hear your testimony. Well, tell me how Jesus saved you. And you'll tell them the old gospel story, how a Savior came from glory, took your place, and then sent the hounds of heaven to follow you until you finally came to tree, and then you came down and you received Jesus. Johnson Oatman wrote a gospel song in 1894. It's called Holy, Holy is What the Angels Sing. It says, there's singing up in heaven such as we have never known, where the angels sing the praises of the Lamb upon the throne. Their sweet harps are ever tuneful and their voices always clear. Oh, that we might be more like them while we serve the Master here. Holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing Redemption's story, they will fold their wings because angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. Father, we thank you for redemption, that you didn't come to tell us to do better because we couldn't. You didn't come to tell us to clean ourselves up but just stoop down the King of Kings and wash us from our sins in your own blood. Lord, we're not special. That's not why you saved us. You saved us. That's what makes us special. We were without hope in the world, and then you came, and you interceded for us, and then you took our place. Oh, Lord, during this season of Christmas, while we still have opportunity to be faithful, help us to be ever open and sensitive to your spirit to speak the truth in love, to share what we've found in you, to be a reflection of your grace to those that are hurting around us, that they also might have the testimony that they're the planting of the Lord, oak trees of righteousness, Lord, that you might be glorified. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.